Well, good morning, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. I ask that you turn your Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. I'd like to introduce you this morning to one of the greatest points of tension that arises in the Old Testament. The tension in the Old Testament has to do with the relationship between God and man. Specifically, that God made man to glorify himself, and man chose rebellion against God, not the glory of God. Man chose, ultimately, as you know very well from your own sinful heart, to glorify himself. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden chose glory for themselves when tempted by Satan. And as a result, the relationship between God and man has been forever, irrevocably broken. Why is our relationship with God broken permanently? Here's why. Because the God that we're talking about is holy, righteous, just, perfect in all of His ways. And we are not. We're prideful, sinful, lustful, lovers of self. You don't have to look much further than what's going on in our society right now with this month is being Pride Month. It is the case that, very effectively, the LGBTQ plus radicals and sexual revolutionaries have co-opted the month of June and labeled it Pride Month. It is now a government-sponsored holiday, or I should say month-long celebration, across even all sectors of society, from education to sports to media and business. We are now, as citizens in America, obligated to bow down and worship at the altar of satanic fornication. Have you been to Target in the last few weeks? Did you get a chance to see the pride display? And so the question goes, how broken is man's relationship to God? Is it 100% broken? 80% broken? Is it just 50% broken or 5% broken? How broken is the relationship that we have with God? Are men spiritually weak? And we just need to clean ourselves up to be restored to a right relationship with God? Or are men spiritually dead, void of spiritual life, wicked, corrupt, empty, lifeless, totally depraved, both unable and unwilling to be restored to God? Which is it, A or B? How broken is man's relation to God? Are we weak or are we dead? Able or unable to fix our unrighteousness, sin-filled spiritual condition from birth before God? You are in Isaiah 1. Where the Lord is exceedingly angry with Israel in far greater ways than many dads find themselves angry with their kids for staying up past their bedtime, leaving empty boxes of food in the fridge, continually wearing their shoes in the house, and leaving their clothing in the middle of a staircase. We can't understand these behaviors as fathers. We've made our requests over and over, but rebellion is bound up in the heart of the children. When this happens, we need to understand God is allowing sin. On purpose, he's allowing it to prove his patience and long-suffering. He's allowing it for us to prove to ourselves that we're just as sinful as they are, isn't he? God wants us to see that there is a lot of Israel. That is, there is a lot of evil. There is a lot of sin, a lot of rebellion bound up in all of y'all, even in our kids. We're all sinners, rebels to God, enemies of righteousness from birth. This is most clearly seen in the nation of Israel, chosen by God, his he calls Israel his son, and yet Israel is wickedly rebellious to God as, as his nation. They've abandoned worship of God. They've embraced pagan idolatry. They refuse to worship and obey God alone, but at the same time, they love and enjoy the benefit of being called the people of God, just like your kids enjoy being called Naresh or Hickman 
But God is not pleased with Israel at all. 2,700 years ago, not at all. The Lord through the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 1, verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh speaks. Sons I have reared and raised up, but they have transgressed against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not perceive. Alas, sinful nation, people with heavy iniquity, seed of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have forsaken Yahweh. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel. They have become estranged from Him. Drop down to verse 12, where, at verse 12, regarding the worship of Yahweh at the temple, Yahweh asks this question. When you come to appear before me, Who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of convocation. I cannot endure wickedness and the solemn assembly. My soul hates your new moon festivals and your appointed times. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Indeed, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. This is an indictment from the God who gave the nation of Israel life. Israel is entirely broken, corrupt, and opposed to the God who made them. And what is amazing is what comes next in the command, and we see in verses 16 and 17, when Yahweh says to this group of rebels with blood-soaked hands, verse 16, wash yourselves, purify yourselves, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. Learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, execute justice for the orphan, plead for the widow. Question for you, brothers and sisters. Can Israel, sinful as they are, wash themselves? Is this what we've seen from them? Can they purify themselves? Do they have the innate ability to purify themselves? Can they do good and seek justice? Can they cease to do evil? Can our own nation cease to do evil and do justice? Are these commands of God doable or are they not doable? They're righteous commands and he must say them. Are they doable or not doable? Can Israel fix their spiritual condition before God through the strength of their own obedience? Can they? Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 2.20. Jeremiah 2.20. You can begin to feel the tension in the Old Testament. Because you know Israel was ultimately destroyed by God through the Romans in A.D. 70. And the commands of God are righteous. But these people did not cease to do evil. And they did not learn to do justice of their own strength. They did not fix their spiritual condition before God. They did not obey. They didn't have the power. How do we know Israel didn't have the power to wash and cleanse their filthy, sinful hearts? You're in Jeremiah 2.20 where Yahweh through Jeremiah is expressing his anger with the evil of his chosen nation Israel yet again. And he says to them in chapter 2, verse 20, For long ago I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds, your slavery to other nations. But you said, I will not serve Yahweh. I will not serve my God. For on every high hill and under every green tree, you This wicked, rebellious nation, you have lain down as a harlot, yet I planted you as a choice vine, a completely true seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? 
Verse 22. Although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is ever before me, declares the Lord Yahweh. Friends, this is the height of Old Testament tension. How, on the one hand, in Isaiah, can Yahweh command Israel to wash and cleanse themselves, and yet, on the other hand, in Jeremiah, tell them they will never wash the stain of their sin away? How can God tell them to do righteousness in washing and cleansing themselves, and yet tell them they will never be cleansed from the stain of their sins? Friends, what can remove the stain of human sin and iniquity? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if we can't cleanse ourselves from the stain of our sins, how will we ever enter the kingdom of God? If nothing we do can remove our unrighteous deeds, we will never stand in the presence of a righteous God for all of eternity. How can the tension and the situation be fixed, be mitigated, be reconciled? How? Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel eleven seventeen. Ezekiel eleven seventeen. What is then the fix for human sin? How can our hearts be made pure? How can the stain of our sins be removed from our hands? If maximum human effort to wash away our sins will prove ineffective, how can we be saved from our sins? We're dead. We're dead. We're hopeless. There's no way we can make it happen. Well, friends, the answer is very simple. The answer is very simple. It's simply two words. It's just two simple words. You must be, and all the congregation said, you must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be born a second time spiritually. The answer is God must do all the work required to save you, which is exactly what Yahweh prescribes for Israel in Ezekiel eleven seventeen, where the Lord, through the prophet, says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord Yahweh, I will gather you from the people and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. When they come there... They will remove all of its detestable things and all of its abominations from it. And I will give them one heart and give within them a new spirit. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments to do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. But as for those whose hearts walk after the, their detestable things and abominations, I will give what is due for their way onto the top of their head, declares Lord Yahweh. If you just look at verse 21, if you want to know where you're at with your country, where your country's at, verse 21 tells you exactly where your country's at. Receiving the detestable things and the abominations, the payment due for those right onto the head of the nation. But for God's chosen people, we want grace. Friends, this text here in Ezekiel 11 is screaming, salvation belongs to Yahweh our God. Israel will be saved because Yahweh will do all of these activities. What are the activities? Gather and assemble his people. Give them land. Give unity of heart. Give a new spirit. Remove the heart of stone. Give them a heart of flesh, which will be obedient and loyal to the God who is the giver, the giver of second life. What an amazing thing. Brothers and sisters, this is born-again language, is it not? In the Old Testament. Born-again language in the Old Testament. Even Jeremiah, 
Ezekiel and Isaiah are Calvinists, you could say. This is salvation from above, given exclusively by God. The only way for the stain of human sinfulness to be permanently removed is by an act of God. God alone must fix man's rebellion and sin as a sovereign act of his free will. Again, this is one-sided, God-given, grace-driven, monergistic, Calvinistic salvation found in the Old Testament. The greatest tension in the Old Testament is understanding man's restoration to God is God-driven. Men can't fix men. Only God can fix men. And that's wonderful news. Because regardless of how sinful people were to you this week, you can pray for them and you can ask God to fix them internally, giving them a new nature, a new spirit. How does a man get to heaven? How can he find eternal life? How can he enter the kingdom of God? The answer to the tension is you must be born again, born a second time, born from above. This is the salvation presented in the Old Testament that Jesus expected Nicodemus, who is the premier salvation authority in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, Jesus expected Nicodemus to understand this salvation that I just laid out for you from Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Would you now turn your Bibles to this very story, John chapter 3, where Nicodemus and Jesus are having a conversation? Friends, why is understanding salvation, regeneration, and spiritual rebirth so critically important? Why would some of you say, that's Oliver's hobby horse? He's really, he really rides that, that salvation song over and over again. Well, all I'm doing is preaching the Word of God to you. It keeps showing up because that's what Jesus wants to talk about. It's on His mind. And so it's in the text, and so we preach it. Why is it important, though? Here's why. Because of the amount of fraud, deception, evil, and sin in the human heart that causes men and women, many men and women, to believe that they know, love, and serve Jesus while they are actually serving Satan and themselves. Christians must know salvation in the same way that a bank teller must know the security features of a $100 bill. This may be news to you, but allow me to tell this to you and keep this quiet just between you and I, okay? There are pretenders among us. I didn't say there are aliens among us. I said there are pretenders among us. There are pretenders among us. There are people who come into the church and tell you that they love Jesus, but they are far from him because they have never been born again. Because there's things to like in the church. There are people in this world who claim to know Jesus, but they're liars, they're charlatans, they're fakes, phonies, and frauds. If we really love people, we must be able to recognize a false salvation and call pretenders to genuine repentance and faith in Christ alone. Not in their sinful ways. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. How many people are plucked from the hand of God because of schemes of man? False salvation. You know, just last Sunday at St. Raphael Parish in Cleveland, Ohio, Catholic pastor Timothy Garreau was railing against a group of queer and transgender men who call themselves the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And he was railing against their recent invitation to celebrate Pride Night with the Los Angeles Dodgers until he was interrupted in his pulpit 
Pastor Tim was interrupted by a transgender former parishioner named Avery who approached the altar and said, quote, queer and trans people also carry the Holy Spirit. And that was really painful to hear what you just said, Pastor Tim. That was really hurtful to me. Because, Pastor Tim, you baptized me. I carry the Holy Spirit within me. There are queer children here. The Spirit of God moves through all people. End quote. Brothers and sisters, is transgender former parishioner Avery right or wrong? Believing in truth or believing in lies? Do openly queer and open, see that, listen, listen carefully. Do openly queer and trans people carry the Holy Spirit in their hearts? I would hope you know the answer to that question is no. Is it the case that born-again people can be actively homosexuals? Actively? No. Or is it the case that sexual deviants and fornicators of all kind, like all of us, must be, what are the words? Born again. The answer is yes. We must be born again. Brothers and sisters, Avery is one of hundreds of millions of self-deceived so-called Christians in our world today. Hundreds of millions of people love and believe in a Jesus of their own imagination. I'm not surprised to the slightest that a Catholic pastor who sells a false salvation on a weekly basis at some point in time baptized a person who's transgender and then was confronted by that person about the false salvation they received. Scripture requires that all people must be born again to see and enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is one of my absolute greatest concerns for you. And so I ask you the question, are you born again? Are you born from above? Is your Christianity something that you manufactured in your own heart? Is it something that you do because you get a room full of people that are potential clients for your business? Is Christianity something you do because afterward you get to attend a children's ministry dinner and you get the good, warm feelings from the people that are there and a wonderful meal? Is Christianity that to you? Is it a free meal and a, and a Pop-Tart and an and a ice cream cone someday? Is that what it is? Is Christianity for you donuts and coffee? Not Many people go to church because they like the feeling of morality, order, and conservative values. Some people are here for just that purpose. Morality, order, conservative values. Many people get baptized because when they're 11 years old, baptism makes mommy and daddy happy. Perhaps the most personal question I can ask you again this morning is, are you born again from above? Are you saved? Who saved you, friend? You or God? You realize if you answer that question, God, you're a Calvinist like me? John wants you to know that Jesus is God, and he is the one who delivers salvation to his people on his terms in his timing. The purpose of John's gospel is stated plainly in John 20, 31, where John says, these seven signs have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You're in John 3, where we've been studying the Gospel of John since September of last year, looking at the text of John verse by verse. And in John's prologue, John shares that Jesus is God, the creator, and the one who gives people the right to become children of God, verse 12 of chapter 1, who, John says in verse 13, who these people who become children of God, they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born spiritually of God. 
That same theme of salvation given by Jesus into the hearts of men monergistically from John 1.13 finds its way into John chapter 3, where at Jesus' first ministry Passover in AD 30, Jesus is having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus, the leader of the Pharisees, the premier salvation authority in Israel. That's who he is. Nicodemus and the religious elite are not believing that Jesus is God in Jerusalem at Passover AD 30. In fact, the religious elite in Jerusalem would have been asking, is this Jesus guy going to play ball, spiritually speaking, on our terms? Or is he going to join our team or is he going to fight against us? Jesus was performing signs in Jerusalem after scourging the temple and running out the sellers of oxen and sheep along with their animals and overturning the tables of the money changers. The religious elite were wondering, from where does this guy get his authority? They likely longed to get Jesus onto their team because they saw the authority of his signs and liked his teaching in some capacity because it was effective. So the Jewish religious authorities sent a man named Nicodemus, the premier spiritual authority, to confront Jesus and to question Jesus at night. What's amazing about this story is how Jesus quickly and without warning assaulted every bit of Nicodemus' spiritual authority by delivering what I like to call the premier salvation analogy. So here you have in the text, the premier salvation authority, Nicodemus, receives from Jesus the premier salvation analogy. And the analogy is this, you must be born again. And with this declaration, Jesus makes clear there are two kinds of people in this world, friends. There are the saved and the unsaved. There are the redeemed and the unredeemed. There are the believers and the unbelievers. No offense to y'all over here on this side. There's no room. There's no possibility for people to make a third-class citizen here in the middle who are pretenders. You are either saved by God and in the fraternity, or you are unsaved and you're excluded and you will spend an eternity in hell. It's either A or B. That's what Jesus offers Nicodemus. This becomes clear as Jesus explains the premier salvation analogy and establishes the born-again fraternity. I like that. The born-again fraternity in our text today, which you will see as we read John 3, 1 through 15, where John says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, and you do not accept our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe them, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up 
so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. The words of Jesus come to an end at verse 15, even if your Bible has red letters or quotes that continue through verse 21. The Greek grammar of the text and the reasoning of scholars like R.C. Sproul, Andreas Kostenberger, Leon Morris, and D.A. Carson is more than compelling. R.C. Sproul says, quote, most commentators see John 3.16 as written by the Apostle John, and I agree with that assessment, says Sproul. He says, in my opinion, John 3.16 should not be in red letters. To be sure, good, God-fearing men disagree on where Jesus' speech ends. It's not amazing that Christians debate this particular point. Where does Jesus' words end and where do they begin? Because it's all Scripture, and so it's all inspired. What is amazing is this, that the vast majority of Christians read a man-centered salvation into that next verse at John 3.16, which you should know oh so well. They read a man-centered salvation into John 3.16, which is completely disconnected from the salvation presented by Jesus in John 3.1 through 15. Many, many Christians covet the English translation at the word, whosoever, whosoever believes, which causes them to embrace the idea that salvation somehow between verse 15 and now in verse 16, somewhere right there, salvation belongs to men, not God. They believe the idea that salvation is now in verse 16, a choice of men, and in verses 1 through 15, it's clearly the choice of God. Brothers and sisters, John 3, 16 literally reads, for God so loved the world that he gave his one unique son so that the one believing in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And what we learn from John 3, 1 through 15 is that the one believing in Jesus is the one who has been born again by God. Not of his own choosing, but God's choice, God's election, God's grace. Please, brothers and sisters, don't allow your family members and friends the room in salvation to disconnect and separate John 3.16 from its entire surrounding context. It's so awful to disconnect John 3.16 from 17 and 18, let alone to connect, disconnect 3.16 from 3.1 through 15. When you allow men and women to do this, to extract a verse and make it spin and tell a story that's not there, you're allowing them to create a fake Jesus, a phony salvation, and a worthless gospel. Brothers and sisters, John 3 is telling us salvation and saving faith are not the choices of men. Salvation, saving faith, and spiritual rebirth are gifts given from the free will decision of God. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus that salvation is entirely one-sided, God-given, grace-driven, monergistic, and Calvinistic. There is no better way to explain salvation than Jesus does in John 3. Every one of us in reading John 3, should, our hearts should sing over and over again, and there should be maximum rejoicing because of Jesus' powerful job to deliver the, the, the salvation, the salvation analogy, the premier salvation analogy in John 3. 
Jesus has set up a doctrines of grace, sovereignty of God, Calvinism 101 classroom in Jerusalem. Nicodemus is his first student. He came at night. Why does Jesus need to teach Calvinism and the sovereignty of God and salvation to Nicodemus? Because he didn't believe it. Because he has a man-made salvation, that's why. And why does Nicodemus need to know about spiritual rebirthing? Because he believes that he's going to get heaven on his own strength. How hard-hearted is the man who thinks he's getting to heaven on his own strength? How hard-hearted is that guy? What makes this salvation conversation so great? This conversation is exceptional because of the clarity in Jesus' premier salvation analogy. I told you previously in this text, Jesus shares three terms of salvation which highlight the exclusivity of eternal life. Jesus clarifies three conditions of salvation which beget belief in spirit-driven rebirth, What three terms of salvation highlight the exclusivity of eternal life and spirit-driven rebirth? Well, I put these in the notes for you. You can see them there in, in your handout, but I'll give them to you now as well. The first of three terms of salvation is, number one, the born again formality. And we saw that as we studied verses one through four. The second term of salvation is number two in your notes, the born again fraternity, which begins in verse five and goes through verse eight. And finally, we arrive at the third of three terms of salvation, the born-again finality in verses 9 through 15. And this is an outline that we're chewing our way through. We've already covered the first of three terms of salvation, the born-again formality, in two previous lessons. And this week we will consider the second of three terms of salvation, the born-again fraternity. And I would tell you that today is part one because we're only going to focus on verse 5. The born-again fraternity, part one, verse 5. My contention is that Nicodemus is hostile, not humble in our text. Confrontational, not curious. He's got a lot to protect. His money, his status, his power, his Arminian-style salvation built on works. Jesus needs to be shut down. So Nicodemus came at night. I asked previously, what was Nicodemus' motive in visiting Jesus at night? Is he filled with anger and pride or humility and patience? Is this story a picture of budding faith or a bold face-off? Is this hostility or humility, confrontation or curiosity? Many people believe that Nicodemus is genuine in his approach to Jesus here, humble and curiously, patiently seeking answers to life's greatest question. And that's just fine. You can hold that belief. I'm not here to take that belief away from you, but I do want to point this out to you. I I do believe that there is another way to view Nicodemus that better fits the context that uses sharp contrast and extreme irony that John is striving to create. This this text is loaded with contrasts. Allow me to give you my top five reasons to believe Nicodemus is not seeking Jesus' salvation, but Jesus' submission to the Sanhedrin. I gave these to you the last time we met. I want to give them to you again because I want you to think about the contrast that exists in the text. These are my top five reasons to believe that Nicodemus is not seeking Jesus' salvation on this night. Number one, Nicodemus' opening comment is cultural, customary flattery, and it cannot be taken at face value. In fact, such flattery can be used as a veil to hide plans, schemes, and manipulation. Second, I would have you know, Nicodemus' words appear to be a veiled threat in light of Luke eleven fifteen, where the bad theology of the Pharisees causes them to charge Jesus with casting out demons by the ruler of the demons. Would they have made that charge against Jesus in Luke eleven fifteen if Jesus had been more polite and agreeable to Nicodemus on this night? I don't think so. Number three, I would tell you this, the context of John 2.25, 
It declares that Jesus knows all the inside thoughts of men's sinful hearts. And Nicodemus here is a sinful man. He's a representative of fake and phony believers, those who are found in John 2.23. And so we have the context of John 2.25 as the third reason to believe that Nicodemus is not seeking Jesus' salvation. Number four is Jesus' response. Jesus' response rips right past Nicodemus' flattery, moving quickly to assault Nicodemus' mind and his heart. Jesus is not long-suffering, patient, and kind, but rather his comments are a nuclear explosion in the heart and mind of Nicodemus. Jesus' aggressive spiritual assault of Nicodemus is reason number four. Number five, the fifth reason to believe that Nicodemus is not seeking Jesus' salvation, number five is Nicodemus' response to Jesus. It doesn't indicate patience or willingness to learn or understand, but rather his response is exasperation. It is frustration, and it is seen clearly in his absurd illustration. Nicodemus is flabbergasted by Jesus' born-again analogy, and he responds with mockery, not meekness. Nicodemus' questions are mockery of Jesus' premier salvation analogy. He hadn't been studying the Scriptures. The Scriptures like, oh, I don't know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. He trusted in a salvation that he could supply by his own hand, his own strength, his own position, his own heritage, his title. His synergistic understanding of salvation had to be crushed. For the glory of God. Because, friends, the truth is, God can save anyone He wants to at any time, regardless of where they are and where they're from and what they look like. This is grace driven, monergistic, Calvinistic salvation. God doesn't ask you if He can save your soul, He just jumps into your soul and saves your wicked soul, cleansing you from the inside out, whether you like it or not. That's the salvation that Scripture speaks about. That's the salvation that you pray for your relatives and your friends. It'd be really disgusting and really awful of you if you were to pray for your friends, John, will you just come to Jesus? John, will you just accept Jesus into your heart? That is not the way to pray for John. Pray for John like this. John, I pray that Jesus Christ crushes your wicked, sinful heart. I pray that he graces you with salvation, that you would turn from your wicked ways and repent and trust in Christ alone as your Savior. That's how you pray for John. Pray Calvinistically. As a result of this God-given, grace-driven, monergistic, Calvinistic understanding of salvation, anyone can be saved. You get that? That's good news. Smile at me, somebody. Anybody can be saved. I'm talking about homosexuals can be saved. I'm talking about transgender sexual deviants can be saved. Anyone can be born again by God and made to repent and be given new life in Jesus Christ. Such were some of you. But you were washed, and you were cleansed, and the power of God and the grace of God were brought, into, brought you into the fraternal order of kingdom brothers. That seems to be exactly what happened to Nicodemus as a result of this conversation with Jesus. Uh, Jesus I should say it. it seems that Jesus' truth bomb that exploded perfectly into Nicodemus' heart and mind this night did its perfect work. We see a proof of, of Jesus' salvation explosion and rebirth of Nicodemus later in Scripture in John 7 and in John 19 when Nicodemus challenges the Pharisees about the law's requirements to hear a man before trying him. He was defending Jesus to the Pharisees. And at Jesus' death, when Nicodemus is helping Joseph of Arimathea carefully prepare and bury Jesus in his tomb. 
Brothers and sisters, saving Nicodemus is the height of contrast and a marvelous demonstration of God's power over spiritual rebirth. Jesus stepped right past Nicodemus' manipulations and his cultural formality in John 3.2, saying in John 3.3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. These words shattered Nicodemus' world. Jesus won't play ball in the terms of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus is floored, flabbergasted, and frustrated. He's incredulous at Jesus' kingdom comment and the means to get there. And we see his response in verse 3-4. Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time to his mother's womb and be born? These two absurd and exasperated questions prove the hostility and mockery that Nicodemus has in his heart. And the fact that at this moment, Nicodemus is a man headed to hell, even as he is presently the premier salvation authority in all of Israel. He's the smart guy. He's the one that's supposed to know better. This is an ouchie worse than Dr. Fauci could lay on you. <laughs> Fortunately for Nicodemus, this meeting was foreordained by God. Do you get that? This meeting was foreordained by God. Just like COVID, those two painful years, foreordained by God. This meeting on this night, foreordained by God. Your presence here today, foreordained by God. Predetermined by the God of the universe God orchestrated all the details of Nicodemus' life so that he would arrive on this night, hard-hearted, as it were, and ready to be broken with spiritual truth, spiritual reality, just as God orchestrated your arrival at Community Bible Church today. How many of you have the same story? Jesus' words crushed you when you were hard-hearted against him. Who among us today has come hard-hearted toward the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who among us is Jesus seeking to crush with the weight of his premier salvation analogy today? Who among us does not quite understand what it means to be born again? Friend, if this is you, I have good news for you. Jesus took the time with Nicodemus to further explain what he meant when he said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus was happy to break Nicodemus' heart again with greater spiritual truth about salvation, which we see in John 3, 5, where John reports in chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus answered these two absurd questions, and he said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. On this day, June 4th, 1919, 104 years ago, our nation changed. On this day in 1919, 104 years ago, Congress passed the 19th Amendment. The 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote in America. For nearly 150 years, women were not allowed to vote in our country. They were not allowed to vote. They were excluded from voting. They were excluded from being voters of our country, driving its course and direction. And that came to an end by woman power, you could say, as women's suffrage groups gained power and demanded access to the American electoral system. No longer was voting exclusively for the men in the country. Now voting would be open to everyone. Brothers and sisters, many people treat salvation the same way 
as they would treat and understand the right for women to vote 104 years ago. Many people believe that access into the kingdom of God is granted to those who demand it, who pursue it, who force salvation on their own terms. Is that how you gain access to an exclusive club, to a college fraternity, to an elite sports team? Do you just show up on the practice field and the coach lets you play and you become part of the team? Is that how that works? By force? Can you get a big group of people together and crash the gates of heaven and demand entrance? Is that how that works? How does God grant access to the spiritual fraternity of the elect, the saved, and the chosen? Does God allow himself to be compelled and persuaded by human reasoning, human emotion, human effort, human force, human will? Or is entrance into the fraternal order of kingdom brothers entirely impossible in the strength and will of men and women? Today's text speaks of the fraternity of the born again. An elect group of people chosen by God before the foundation of the world, not on the basis of strength, wisdom, skill, speed, good looks, or grand accomplishments. No, friends, to the contrary, the born-again fraternity is a ragtag bunch of sinners saved by grace who've been taken by God through a special rite of initiation into His club, His spiritual fraternity. God's initiation into his fraternal order of kingdom brothers and sisters is exclusively a work done in his strength, which features his work of cleansing, his work of renewal and spiritual regeneration, which are divine features of God-given, grace-driven, monergistic, Calvinistic-style salvation worthy of our greatest consideration. You must know there is a spiritual fraternity of God's elect, those who have been born again. You can hear the questions in the hearts of men and women who want to get access into this club. They would be ripe on the tongue of many maybe visiting here today. How can I get in, pastor? Tell me, how can I get in? How can I be saved? How can I get into Jesus' spiritual fraternity? Let me know, let me know. The most hurtful answer that I need to give you today is nothing. You can do nothing. You can't do anything, friend, to save yourself. You must be born again. Born from above. Born of water and the Spirit. It does make me wonder, in saying that, this sanctuary only seats about a buck fifty. And there's other churches outside. And I've got empty seats in here. And there's a whole world of people out there at the lake there's a whole world of people out there at the golf course. There's a whole world of people out there laying at home in bed. And they want nothing to do with this conversation today. But you do. Who made that happen? You or God? Makes me wonder if he's already at work in your heart. The question to ask isn't, Oliver, how can I get into Jesus' spiritual fraternity? How can I get in? How can I get in? Friend, it's not a work of your hand that will get you in. The, the real question to ask is this. Has God drawn you here today so that by preaching the Word of God, by the preaching of the Word of God, you would yourself recognize your own sinfulness and repent and believe in Jesus alone for salvation? That's the question to ask yourself. This is exactly how Jesus saves. 
by explaining his word in greater detail, which is exactly what we see Jesus doing for Nicodemus here in our text. James Boyce says, having explained new birth in reference to its source, Jesus now begins to explain in a more technical way how the new birth takes place. Now he speaks of the means by which it occurs. And in our text today, Jesus presents three marks of the kingdom brotherhood that destroy admission by human achievement. It is in our text today that Jesus imparts three essentials of spiritual fraternity which highlight the sovereignty of God and salvation. What three essentials of spiritual fraternity destroy human achievement and highlight God's sovereignty and salvation? I'll list them for you here. I believe that you can find them right there in your notes as well. The first of three essentials of spiritual fraternity is, number one, the entrance to spiritual fraternity in verse 5. Number two is the exclusion of spiritual fraternity in verse 6. And number three is the exhaustion of spiritual fraternity in verses 7 and 8. And with our remaining time this morning, we will do well to consider point number one, the first of three essentials of spiritual fraternity. The first of three essentials of spiritual fraternity is, number one, the entrance to spiritual fraternity as we see in verse 5. Where do we see the entrance requirements for spiritual fraternity as we come to point number one in your notes? The entrance to spiritual fraternity. Where do we see this? Jesus discusses entrance into the kingdom of God in John chapter 3, verse 5, where we read, verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For the second of three times in this conversation, Jesus uses the solemn formula to introduce profound spiritual realities when he says, truly, truly. This doubled up combination of the Greek word amen means with absolute certainty. Nothing could be more sure. Pay attention. If we are paying attention to the conversation, it's important to note as well that Jesus uses another conditional clause here in verse 3-5 to provide greater detail that Nicodemus needs as Nicodemus has even requested. We see the conditional clause in the word unless, which interestingly is the same Greek conditional clause used by Nicodemus in 3.2. It seems that Jesus is extremely intent, even rubbing Nicodemus' face in it a little bit, on contrasting Nicodemus' conditional unless flattery in chapter 3, verse 2, with spiritual realities in verses 3 and verse 5. Jesus' use of aeon may which is translated unless, is focused on presenting the means of spiritual second birth to Nicodemus. In 3.3, Jesus was focused on the source of seeing the kingdom of God, second birth from above. The source is from above, second birth that comes down from above. Here in 3.5, Jesus' focus is the means of second birth, how, how a man is born again spiritually. What are the means for a man to be born again? What is guarding the entrance to the kingdom of God? What right of spiritual initiation is required for admission to heaven forever? Jesus says in chapter 3, verse 5, one must be born of water and the Spirit. How are we supposed to understand these two conditions of spiritual second birth? First, we need to consider the Greek verb ganao, which is translated must be born or is born. Ganao means to bear, to give birth. And in the passive voice, it means to be born. To be conceived. This verb, ganao, is used eight times in this passage alone, both by Jesus and Nicodemus, and it is significant 
that each time it is used, both men are using ganao in the passive voice. They are both speaking about spiritual birth happening passively, which is exactly the same way that physical birth happens passively, which makes the premier salvation analogy perfect. Because you are being told in the text, salvation is not something you do. Salvation is something God does to you. You are a recipient of this. It is given as a free gift. It's a free gift that God gives to wicked sinners like you and I. Second, Jesus shares entrance into the spiritual fraternity of the saints is accomplished by water and the Spirit. We really need to ask, what do these two terms mean? How are we to understand water and the Spirit? Leon Morris says, the explanation of this unusual and arresting expression are many, but most of them fall into one, of, one or the other of three main groupings. People believe that water is purification, or water is procreation, or water is baptism. Those three headings, purification, procreation, baptism. Many scholars view water as baptism. They say that the context of John chapter 1, verse 33, which has both words, water and the Spirit, provides the context and clarification needed to understand John 3, 5. But friends, that was several stories and a few ideas earlier. However, D.A. Carson doesn't agree with this interpretation of baptism for water for several reasons. He says, quote, If the evangelist John the Apostle expected his readers to detect some secondary allusion to Christian baptism in verse 5, the thrust of the passage treats such an allusion quite distantly. What is emphasized is the need for radical transformation. He says, if water equals baptism is so important for entering the kingdom, it is surprising that the rest of the discussion never mentions it again. The analogy between the mysterious wind and the sovereign work of the Spirit becomes very strange if spirit birth is tied so firmly to water baptism. He says, we are being told in the strongest terms that it is the new birth itself that is essential, not the rite of Christian baptism. Steve Lawson says, Scripture never requires baptism for salvation. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and yet he never baptized anyone, according to John chapter 4, verse 2. If water baptism was necessary for salvation, why did Jesus never baptize anyone, asks Steve Lawson. Others get stuck in the extremely literal sense of the word water, and they believe that it means the amniotic fluid of physical childbirth. These scholars necessarily see two births in verse 5, the physical birth by water, amniotic fluid, and spiritual birth by the Spirit. But friends, be assured of this. Water and Spirit are two words in parallel with one another in verse 5. They operate together. They're saying the same thing. Only one birth is in view. It is the spiritual birth, which happens by means of both the water and the spirit. Figuratively, we need to understand what is water and what is the spirit. How, what's going on there? D.A. Carson says, when water is used figuratively in the Old Testament, it habitually refers to renewal or cleansing, especially when it is found in conjunction with the spirit. Carson says, the conjunction may be explicit or may hide behind language depicting the pouring out of the Spirit. I want you to keep that in mind, not only for where we're going in the text, but for where we've been. There's a lot of washing and cleansing language in the Old Testament, isn't there? Yeah, that, that's an indication that there's water needed. Would you turn now in your Bibles to Ezekiel 36? 
Ezekiel 36. Steve Lawson says, This water is best understood to symbolize the inner cleansing of the soul in the new birth. He says, Before God places a new heart within a person, He must cleanse the sin-stained soul. Friends, how many of you have come here today with sin-stained souls? How did that happen to you, friend? How did your soul get stained with sin? What have you been up to in your life? What are the chances in this hyper-sexualized world that your stains are from sexual sins? What have you added to your sexual sins? Have you added social media sins? The pursuit of your own fame and glory? Have you added substances? Substances like drugs? Alcohol? What are the idols of your heart that you're worshiping after that consume your time, your thoughts, your money? You've become just like the nation of Israel, maybe. A rebel to God and an idol worshiper. And the stains of your sin are ever before you. Do you want the stain of your sin gone? Are you burdened by the stain of your sin? Do you see it only leads you to death, to pain, toil, shame, guilt, remorse? Do you see that you can't cleanse the stain of your sin? Do you know the one who can? Have you come today to ask your creator for his cleansing? That was a good idea on your part. I might say one that you didn't think of yourself. A gracious Savior put that in your mind. Well, this is what King David was after in Psalm 51. When he cries out to Yahweh saying in Psalm 51, 7, Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He says in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Friend, do you know this about the God of the universe, that He alone can cleanse the human soul? He alone can cleanse your soul. He made you. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows the number of days before there was yet one of them. He knows you. And in John 3, Nicodemus didn't know any of these things, seemingly. It's as if he never read and understood the greater tension in the Old Testament. Man's relation to God is broken. Even Israel, his own nation's relationship to God is broken. There is only one solution. Yahweh, who calls himself the fountain of living water in Jeremiah 17, 13, must be the one who cleanses the human soul in his strength. This is exactly what we see in Ezekiel 36. God's greatest glory is found in this, friends. Listen, listen. God's greatest glory is found in this. Cleansing human hearts from the stain of sin and living inside that cleansed heart in His Holy Spirit. This is possible because Jesus' death on the cross at Calvary. This is possible because the Holy Spirit is sent to live inside of us. This is needful because no man could ever be reconciled to God in any other fashion, any other way, any other capacity. Impossibility. Entrance to Jesus' spiritual fraternity comes through water cleansing and Holy Spirit indwelling. D.A. Carson says... Most important of all is Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, where water and spirit come together so forcefully, the first to signify cleansing from impurity and the second to depict the transformation of the heart that will enable people to follow God wholly, with the hold of their being. I want to give you more of the context for the second spiritual birth that Yahweh describes in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. So let's begin reading the text here at Ezekiel 36, 16. 
And let's not only consider the means of salvation that the Lord will unquestionably supply at verse 25, water and the Spirit. Let's also consider the reason for God to save. Yahweh tells us in the text, He saves Israel for the sake of His own name. Feel the force of that as we read Ezekiel 36, starting at verse 16. Then the word of the Lord, Yahweh, came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore, I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land because they had defiled it with their idols. Also, I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed through the lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You are a judge. Then they came to the nations to which they came. And they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, these are the people of Yahweh, yet they have come out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord Yahweh, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you have come into. I will prove the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares Lord Yahweh, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. And I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land, 1948. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all of your uncleanness and from all of your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to do my judgments. Brothers and sisters, this is... The born-again fraternity explained in the Old Testament. Nicodemus should have known this salvation. This is the premier salvation analogy given by Ezekiel 600 years before Jesus speaks to Nicodemus. God's plan has always been reconciliation with man through spiritual heart surgery after a thorough washing and cleansing happened by the power of the Holy Spirit. You could say figuratively, I know, it's I, know it's, I know it's spiritual, and in one giant sense, it's literal. Steve Lawson says, this is an exclusive work that God alone performs when he says, I will. He indicates the new birth is a singular effort on his part alone. It is not a joint effort, says Lawson. It's not a joint effort by God and people Instead, says Lawson, regeneration involves the sole activity of God alone. Only God can purify the human soul. This is a truth that Nicodemus should have known, says Steve Lawson. Would you turn back in your Bibles to John 3, 5? The kingdom of God is full of the glory of God, not men. We've read it here in Ezekiel 36. Every aspect of born-again salvation is the glory of God. Every aspect. I will give. I will renew. I will place. I will move. I will draw. I will call. It's all Him all the time. There is no glory for man at any point in the spiritual second birth. All glory to God. Soli Deo Gloria. Entrance into the kingdom of God is controlled by the Holy Spirit's washing and cleansing us of our sins, removing and replacing our heart of stone, and taking up residence inside our new hearts. If you have been born again by God, how should you feel about this? 
What should second spiritual birth cause you to think, feel, and say? How must we sinners made saints respond to a salvation that we could not afford, that we didn't earn, but we received entirely by the grace of God? Friends, we should be broken, humbled, awestruck by the love and grace of God. We should remember the feeling of shame and guilt of our sins and rejoice in the blood of Christ which washed away every unrighteous deed, every hurtful word, every selfish thought. We should be overwhelmed with gratitude, thankfulness, praise, worship, and obedience to Jesus, our Savior, Redeemer, and Friend. Even though Jesus says very plainly to Nicodemus in John 3, 6, here's irony for you. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, 6, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Friends, we should marvel. We're the ones who should marvel. We should be amazed, even flabbergasted, at the thought that the God who created the universe took one second of his time to think a salvation thought about us, let alone to deliver that salvation to us. Oddly enough, the truly redeemed heart should ask the same question Nicodemus asked in John 3.9. How can these things be? Friends, for the glory of God, this is what is required for entrance into the kingdom of God. Salvation must be delivered by God. You must be born again, born of water and the Spirit. As we close our time, allow me to ask you a few questions regarding the status of your soul. Is it the case that you honor the God who caused your rebirth? Is it the case that you know the salvation that He placed into you? Is it the case that you understand one-sided, monergistic, Calvinistic salvation that is entirely a work of God because the minds of men don't want to believe it's true. The God-centered salvation of men in John 3 is repulsive to the minds of men. Is it repulsive to your mind that God chose you and wanted you to repent and confess of your sins and He gave you His Spirit to make it happen? Is that repulsive to you or is that your delight, your joy, your treasure? A gift that no one could take away. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for this time with my brothers and sisters. It's a joy to consider and think on spiritual rebirth because all it does is highlight your power, your sovereignty over men. And it convicts us and condemns us of how fallen we are. And it causes us to rejoice at the grace of God. We thank you for this message and this time together in Christ's name. Amen.